Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm gonna have a brother? <laughs> I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Tony, what's going on on this glorious Lord's Day for you? Not much. We're going to have some pancakes later. We're uh, recording a little bit earlier, so I'm going to make some pancakes, put some chocolate chips in there, make some bad decisions. Dude, breakfast... Wow. I love that. Breakfast and bad decisions. That sounds yes. like a podcast that we need to start, like side podcast. That does sound like a good podcast. Breakfast and bad decisions. Dude, what, what would the topics be? Uh, that's a good question. Like, um, what are crazy things that people eat for breakfast or like, or put in their pancakes? There you go. Um, I don't know. Everything that everything I can think of sounds delicious in pancakes. So, so here's maybe something. like sardines. You shouldn't put sardines oh, in pancakes. Man, that that sounds gross. Bad decision. So here's something that's interesting because I live in South Central Pennsylvania. Are you familiar with this thing called Scrapple? You know, I have heard of Scrapple. I heard really? about it because I was listening to a Westminster Seminary California uh, lecture by John Murray, who talked about Scrapple. When he lived in Pennsylvania, when he was a professor at, uh, did I say John Murray? Not John Murray. Robert Strempel. I was going to uh, say. <laughs> yeah. When he was a professor at Westminster uh-huh. Seminary in Philadelphia. So I don't remember the details, but um, he said that it was pretty just disgusting. When I retell this story later on, I'm going to say it was John Murray because that's even better. Yeah, that's fine. That's yeah. fine. That's how it's, this is how it's, how it's supposed to work. I love that. So Scrapple It was Athanasius, is, actually. Athanasius was Athanasius? telling me about Scrapple the other day. Listen, Athanasius loved Scrapple. <laughs> he ate that stuff all the time. So I Scrapple, mean, when you're in exile, you got to eat the Scrapple. Well, when, yeah, when you're in exile. Actually, here's the funny thing. Scrapple is pork exile. Like, that's basically what it is. I don't know what that means. So it's my understanding of it is, and I don't know if they've ever had it, but the one thing you need to know is usually it's gray. So there's something to be said for that. It's got a wonderful color palette associated with it, but it's basically like all the parts that didn't even make it into like hot dogs. And you basically just grind it up and then you throw it on a griddle. And some people put some uh, like syrup on it. Some people eat it straight up, but it's like a delicacy of South Central Pennsylvania, like somewhere between like the Amish and Pennsylvania Dutch. And it looks unique. I've never been brave enough because I feel like even spam is like one step ahead of this. Oh man. Yeah, concoction. So I'm sure, again, people are like just throwing their phones and their podcast players in disgust because the, you know, like the Scrapple Coalition is going to come out against us now because how I've disparaging I've been about it. But it is a breakfast bad decision, in my humble opinion. You know, next time that I'm in Pennsylvania, we're going to have to do a live uh, Scrapple tasting. Oh, that'd be so good. Here's what we should do. Even better, come to Pennsylvania during Lent and we'll be like, we're only going to eat Scrapple during Lent. Oh, man. We could we could be like we could start a new Reformation, uh, John uh, or not John Knox, uh, Zwingli style. And it could be like the affair of the of the Scrapple. (laughs) 
We'll like buy a bunch of Scrapple and we'll go to the closest uh, Roman Catholic church on like a Tuesday afternoon and we'll try to convince the priest to eat Scrapple with us. Uh, that would be awesome. I, yes. Yeah, we should definitely make a podcast. Out of it. This thing has already gone off the rails. I feel so like hard. this podcast is already better than our podcast, so we should probably pull up uh, quick and get into our topic. <laughs> yeah, so speaking of topics, I wanted to chat with you today about forgiveness. And this is something that I've been thinking about a whole lot recently, just because I'm so encouraged by the way in which the reform theological stream handles and uplifts and gives forgiveness, especially God's forgiveness of us through Jesus Christ, its proper due and influence. I just think there's something beautiful about that. So where I kind of wanted to start was, in some ways, at least if you're like me, and maybe you are, I tend to just take for granted that forgiveness is part of kind of this broad Christian perspective and part of like our theology. It's intermingled. We import it in in all kinds of places. But I think, at least in my own life, really give it like its uplifted state. And I came to that conclusion, at least by way of thinking about something simple like the Apostles' Creed, which has that clause at the end that's often repeated, but I think without consideration. And that is the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So there's this long historical record of emphasizing how important it is to believe in the forgiveness of sins. So I kind of wanted to start there. Like, why, why have so many people kind of professed that historically? And why is it important that we kind of think about that today? Yeah, I mean, in, when we talk about the um, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and they talk about believing in the forgiveness of sins, they're obviously, you know, those those confessions or those creeds are obviously talking about God's forgiveness of our sins. Right. But I think, you know, the Bible makes such a close association between um, the forgiveness that God gives us and the expectation of believers to forgive others that I do, I do think you're right that there's got to be a really close connection there. So it's not, you know, it's not the case um, that I can receive God's forgiveness and then just never refuse to forgive anybody else. And there, there's something that is terrifying about that. Yeah. Right. Because forgiveness is not something that ever, I don't think ever comes super easily. It takes a lot of practice and unfortunately to practice uh, forgiving people means that people have to hurt you over and over again. Um, so it's a it's a skill and a um, it's a, a grace that we kind of we receive through suffering, um, you know, which the scripture talks a lot about sanctification coming through suffering. Um, but at the same time, it's it's not an option. It's it's something we have to do. It's something that is so definitive of what it means to be a Christian that if you re- you refuse to offer forgiveness to people. Um, that your status as a Christian is in question. So I think when the creeds, the creeds absolutely are right to put it in a, such a prominent place. Um, you know, usually when you're reading a document, you're thinking about something, um, the beginning and the end is the part that you remember. So I can remember, I can remember how the Hobbit starts and I can remember how the Hobbit ends. But if you ask me to give you any sort of detailed information about the middle part of the Hobbit, totally like out the window. Um, there's, you know, there's like elves and dragons and that's, there's some moonlight. That's like, that's about all I got, <laughs> but I can tell you, I can tell you that, uh, at the end of the Hobbit, he comes home and he right. finds that all of his relatives have invaded his house. And I can tell you at the beginning, the whole, the whole beginning part is talking about hobbits and how like their home is so centrally important to them because they're such homebodies. So there's that, you know, I can tell you that, and I could probably even speculate about what Tolkien is trying to say with those endpoints. Um, so we have the apostles creed or the Nicene creed, and it starts off with the creator of the universe and ends 
largely with the forgiveness of sins. Right. And that's, I'm sure that that wasn't accidental. So those two things are really central. God's forgiveness is what the creed is um, confessing, that we have faith that God forgives. But we also have to remember that part of our forgiveness is the extension of forgiveness to others. Not in like a causative sense. We're not saved because we're willing to forgive. But it's so integrated. Those two things are so integrated that you can't have one. Right. It's as if the proof of the pudding of forgiveness is in the eating. And that eating is demonstrated in action toward others extending a certain type of forgiveness. And I agree right. with you. That That's a really hard word. And that's why I've just been so surprised to see it like articulated very clearly. And that's just the statement of, we believe the forgiveness of sins. And I appreciate you basically equating like smog at the end of The Hobbit with like, <laughs> I believe in the forgiveness of sins. But it's, it's that important to the storyline that it comes kind of at this culminating moment, like at the apex of all this expression of belief. Here we find the simple sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So it right. strikes me that the first step towards heaven is to see clearly that we deserve hell, honestly. Right. Yeah, and absolutely. That, that we have to kind of express that loving kindness of God toward others in a way that is, I don't want to say like even unique from the world, but is all onto its own. And it has an author that is not based in kind of human social interaction or convention yeah. or just what is polite or what is, what is uh, like well or convenient. I, I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that Christian forgiveness is very different from the world um, because I think the world doesn't really do forgiveness. So in a lot of instances that I've experienced, um, people really do hold a grudge. There's no good reason for them to release that. And I think that's where you see like the prominence of uh, the difference between I'm sorry and please forgive me. So, you know, when you say I'm sorry, there's that ambiguity is, is, you know, someone's, someone's um, pet dies and you say, Oh, I'm so sorry. And you're not saying anything about, you know, you're not responsible for that. You're just expressing some sort of like shared negative emotion or some sort of um, regret. That's a circumstances is the case. So when you sin against somebody and you say, well, I'm really sorry about that. You might mean, please forgive me, and you're just not you're just not speaking clearly. But more often than not, what I've found is when you say I'm sorry, you're really more more or less saying like I regret that you were hurt, right. and you kind of leave it at that. Like I regret that this has happened, and if I could change it, I would make it so it hadn't happened. But there's no there's no necessary acknowledgement of of guilt or of um, owing that person something because of the harm you've done to them. Right. Yeah. In my mind, at least. Saying I'm sorry is about consequences and circumstances, but forgiveness is about understanding how you have offended or besmirched somebody's character. Right. They've actually done something against them or against their value. And that's right. where I think the theological perspective that's kind of encapsulated in the Reformed tradition has a lot to offer that's unique and I think really has a wonderful and distinct entry point into biblical understanding of how we should love one another. So, of course, like we would say, that we're all great sinners and that we take to sin naturally from the first. Like nobody needs, this always strikes me as like crazy to think about, but if you've been around anybody and if you have young children or you've been around people who have young children, there's just no course on sin needed. Like this just comes right right from nature. It's absolutely instinctive. So that, that makes sense to me. But then beyond that is understanding that we are all incredibly guilty in the sight of God. So we've broken his laws. We've transgressed his precepts. We've not done his will. And what helps me to understand that is when I look at something like like Job 25.5, which says, Behold, even the moon is not bright 
and all the stars are not pure in your eyes. So this idea that God's character is so incredibly holy so that when Jesus says to like the paralytic man when he's lowered down into from the roof in Mark, your sins are forgiven. That's an expression both of the fact that God through Jesus Christ is able to forgive sin, but also if I were that dude like being lowered down, I'd be like, well, I mean, I guess that's fine that you want to forgive me, but what if all of my the horrible things I've done in this life are against like my neighbors or I've just been short with my wife or I didn't even really want my friends to bring me here today. And this for me at least illustrates that all sin is an offense against God's holy character. That whether if I mistreat my wife because she's made in the image of God and she is in some sense reflective of his glory, that I am offending and besmirching his good name. And so I think of my own life, I take forgiveness lightly because I've taken sin lightly. And it seems like, well, you know, God, you, I guess you're obligated to forgive me on the things that I offend you about, but what about everybody else? And everything is an offense to God. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we see that in, you know, the, um, the classic point where we look in the scripture to see that is the account of, um, David and Bathsheba and he has Uriah murder. Yeah. Right on. And, you know, he, he sleeps with a guy's wife and then he sends this guy out to die. Um, and then he tries to cover it up. And there's almost like a certain level of audacity to say, like, against you and you only have I sinned. Yes. Now, I think I think that that's probably we need to understand that passage. It's not the case that he had only sinned against God. Um, you know, I think there's a level of relative um, magnitude that's being expressed there that the fact that he sinned against God far o- overshadows the fact that he sinned against Bathsheba or against Uriah or against really the entirety of Israel. Um, th- those those things are so minimal in comparison to the fact that he sinned against God. Exactly. That it's as though he sinned against God only. Um, but that doesn't erase the, neg- the the relational sort of horizontal impact of our sin that needs to be addressed. And I think that's kind of what you know what we're talking about tonight is is what does that what does that look like, and how does the Reformed tradition actually speak to how we understand that horizontal forgiveness and reconciliation? And that's a great example because. From our human perspective, we look at that story and be like, David, you jacked up a bunch of stuff. Like a man was killed in this process. Israel's about to suffer. You're going to lose your own child from this. And the first thing he says is exactly what you quoted there, that God, I've come and sinned against you. And he's not negating the consequences of sin, which are very serious. But he is saying the intent of sin, the intent of the offense starts with God. And from there, it only branches out into other perverse and horrible ways. But it is perverse and horrible because I've sinned against God. So at least in other words, as far as I can understand it, sin is not damnable because of its consequences. It's damnable because it offends God and because it stands against his character. And if if Job and Habakkuk are, are speaking of God being so pure that he cannot stand to see evil, he cannot look at any kind of wrong. And we have to understand that like just, just by our sense of being, we are an offense to him and there's no way that we can make amends. There's, there's nothing that we can do on our own. We're totally out of excuses. In many ways, we're just like Judas. And so what we need is a real savior. Like sin is like a serious yeah. burden. And because I work in finance, and this may be just me, unless there's a ton of other people that are listening to us that love finance, I've, <laughs> I've always found the best comparison for what sin is, is to be a debt. As, as in many right. cases, the Bible speaks of it, because with it, a debt is something real. It's not something that can just be easily pardoned. If you repay a, be- a debt, 
the money must come from somewhere. It's not this kind of like right. ephemeral abstract concept where you can just wipe it away with a sponge and say that we're all good. So I, I get the sense that money when it's borrowed must be paid off by somebody. It doesn't just go right. into oblivion. It can't just be absolved without any kind of consequence and without any kind of true hurt or sacrifice. It's, it's a real, it's a real consequence. So that's why I'm, I think, yeah, I need a savior. Like I want to believe in the forgiveness of sins how can I find that savior? Where's the one that can pay this debt so that God and I can be put back into harmony? Yeah. And I think, I think the real beauty of the reform tradition, and I, I don't want to act as though this is exclusive to the reform tradition, um, because even, even the most kind of works driven Roman Catholic, um, position, as long as we're not talking about like full on Pelagians would still say that like God's grace comes first. Right. And that God is the one who decided that forgiveness is possible and, and engaged in the, in what was necessary to do that. The argument is not there between Protestants and Roman Catholics. The argument is in what, what is it that God did to do that? Um, you know, so I would say like Arminians, Lutherans, um, people who don't have like a camp that they really fit into um, everybody who's actually a Christian and holds uh, an orthodox understanding of, of the need for grace. Um, they understand that God goes first. God right. always goes first. And um, I think, you know, I, I think this is a topic that's come up on other podcasts. Um, I, I'm not going to try to look up which one because it's come up multiple times, but um, they've talked about it a lot on the reform pubcast. Um, where t- talking about re- relational forgiveness between two persons, two human persons, um, requires uh, rep- repentance on the part of the person who sinned, and um, before forgiveness can even be extended. Right. And I, I don't know that I entirely disagree with that, um, but I also don't know that I really entirely agree with that because I think that you know we we should be drawing our understanding of how forgiveness looks and how love works and how charity lo- looks. All of those things we should be drawn by looking at how God acts in the Bible, right? And so, you know, even before we were sinners, God was already for, you know, working on forgiving us for our sins. God had determined to forgive us for our sins before we had even been alive to do those sins. Um, and so for me, you know, to look at it and think about, well, a person has to express some sort of remorse or they have to ask for forgiveness, they have to be repentant, um, I'm just not sure how that squares up with the biblical example that we have of God going first, as it were, to bring about that forgiveness. Um, and, you know, that's a, a much longer, like, in-depth conversation than I, I think we need to have tonight. But the, the point of it is, is that in Reformed theology, God decides and determines to forgive us and then does what it takes to bring that forgiveness Amen. about. Um, we often think about, you know, contrition and um Asking for forgiveness is what brings about forgiveness in a situation. So if I forget to take the dog out and the dog goes to the bathroom on the floor and my wife is angry with me for that, she's rightfully angry for that. Um, You know, we think like, well, if Tony apologizes and he asks for forgiveness, then that's going to cause his wife to forgive him for the offense, which is how it usually works. Right. But when we talk about how God forgives, it's actually the other way around. It's God's desire to forgive us. That brings about our contrition. And then, um, you know, then the Holy Spirit can apply that forgiveness that's already been obtained to us. Um, and that's just so like backwards from the way that we think about. Yeah, it is. That's one of the things that I think, among many things, of course, that kind of the Reformed theological perspective gets right and really interprets and summarizes well from the scriptures 
is this idea that the forgiveness, I think you said it really well, starts with God. And we often forget that. So there is, just like all things, the sovereignty of God and our responsibility. There is an intermingling there. There are, there are things that we need to take uh, under our own work, as Paul says, like to work out our salvation. But at the right. same time, we understand that in our human relationships, if I, like you said, if the dog is peeing everywhere and for whatever reason it was like your responsibility to take her out and you apologize, but you do so without contrition or you do so in like a flippant way, then it's possible that your wife is going to be like, you're not clearly sorry. And right. yet it's obvious or should be obvious to us that we have done so much wrong that we have like this tight clenched fist within us that rebels against God, especially in the moments when we're tired or cranky or confused that we can never be as contrite as we ought to, that we can never be as sorry as we really should. And yet, for some reason, God still applies the work, applies the death of his son over our sins in such a way that it's not just like we're partially forgiven or like, okay, that's good enough. Like you've, okay, you've, you've come, you know, 95% of the way and that's all I can ask of you. But it, it's like a full privilege of adoption and right. sonship and forgiveness that's like really astounding to me. And that's where like I'm trying to kind of understand how like there's a fusion between this idea of like limited atonement, which I know we haven't discussed in, in full in this podcast anyway, but how limited atonement and forgiveness kind of go hand in hand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I've been reading, um, we recommended it last week, um, the uh, the book called The Whole Christ um, by Sinclair Ferguson. And um, it the way that the language is, it's hard to even get your head around how this works out. But the the marrow controversy, which is what kind of inspired that book, started with a question asked at a Presbyterian meeting in Scotland. And my understanding is more or less the question was, does a person need to be repentant? Do they need to have demonstrated repentance before you can offer them the gospel? Hmm. And, and it came to be that there were some who wanted to say, essentially, you had to get cleaned up to a certain point. You had to, um, you had to demonstrate a certain amount of repentance before God's grace was even available to you. And that is absolutely not the gospel. Hashtag right. not the gospel, right? Hashtag no and, gospel. Um, you know, we sometimes think, you know, we, we have to be careful because we're not forgiven until we're forgiven, right? So it's not the case that because Christ suffered the penalty on our behalf at a concrete moment in time, you know, 2000 some odd years ago. It's not the case that our that we were born in a state of forgiveness. Right. God didn't forgive us on the cross. He uh, took care of our penalty on the cross. The forgiveness is applied to us when we repent and trust in Jesus. Um, and there's some, com you know, some really kind of like complex theology that tries to account for that. But um, the forgiveness was a foregone conclusion because of God's sovereignty. Mm. Um, and that's, I think that's where the, um, you know, kind of the, the example of um, Hosea and Gomer comes to mind, right? Um, God, God sends the, this prophet on this terrible, terrible course to do things that he absolutely no man would ever want to to be involved in, to know that your wife is going to cheat on you and then to go and win her back and, and to have to like deal with all of that pain. Um, but that's what God does, right? It's not, it's not the case that God is sitting there waiting for us to come to him in order to forgive us. He doesn't forgive us until we come to him, but he's actively bringing about that coming to him. Yes, um, exactly. And that's, I think that's where the reformed tradition is strong. And I think that's where as reformed Christians, when we're talking about our horizontal forgiveness with other people, um, 
when we have someone that's wronged us, our first instinct is to make sure they understand how mad we are so they can see how much they've hurt us. Or maybe we we mope around and we we put on a dour look on our face and we we act really sad so maybe they'll understand how bad they were. And that's that's not the example that we Right. Right. Gomer um, does her thing and Hosea is sent to win her back uh, the same way that God wins us back. He, you know, the whole like God woos us, the whole like romance aspect. That's a terrible, terrible way to talk about it. But the fact is that God doesn't, um, you know, it's not God's anger that brings us to repentance. It's not God's sadness that brings us to repentance. It's God's kindness that brings us to repentance. Right, exactly. So as we're looking at how do we bring about reconciliation with our peers or other people that have sinned against us, um, it's not our anger that's going to bring that about. It's not our sadness that's going to bring that about. It's our kindness. It's our genuineness. It's our, it's our, um, we're going to show them that we desire to be reconciled before they ask us for forgiveness. So while I think I probably agree with um, what uh, Les particularly has said on the subject, that you you can't really have forgiveness, complete forgiveness, until the offending party has come to a place where they've asked for that forgiveness and uh, accepted the sin that they've accomplished um, and, and asked to be forgiven of that debt. That doesn't mean that as the offended party that I'm passive and neutral before that. I should be actively showing my love to that person in order to entice them to want to reconcile and to bring about that forgiveness. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's wonderful. That's really well said because I always found it odd that when Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount and he's, you know, like totally killing that sermon, when he starts speaking about if you're at the altar and you've been wronged. Like the way that we read that, or I used to read that was if you're at the altar and you remember that you've done something bad against somebody, go and apologize to that person. But the actual text says, if you're at the altar about to make a sacrifice and you realize that somebody has been, you wronged somebody or that they feel wronged by you, you need to go pursue them first. So in other words, not just that you wronged somebody, but you feel as if somebody has been wronged, you need to go and pursue that. And I think that's like the critical component because it's this idea of, like you said, I really kind of grow weary of the sense of God as kind of a frustrated, wooing lover. When right. he pursues you, he tracks you down. Like he right. always gets his man. He's efficacious in his love. And so that's where this idea of limited atonement and forgiveness and God being the one for whom he originates forgiveness. It's his priority. It's his good work. And he applies it in all circumstances where it is his goodwill to do so. It's just always going to be efficacious. So there's no no sense in which God wishes that he could forgive you, but can't because we can't right. say the right things or come to the right place. And so to me, there seems to be like an, an inexplicable, like a coupling of this idea of saving and forgiveness, of course. And that right. because if we would say, well, saving is definitely the gift of God's good grace. Then so also is forgiveness, both the the initial, in a sense, forgiveness that brings about justification and positional sanctification, but also this progressive sanctification that every day we're being thankful, coming before the Lord and just saying, thank you for the cross. Thank you for right. forgiving me again. It, it's almost as if every breath I breathe should be an exhalation of I'm sorry. And that's just not the way that I live. And yet I do other things beyond that that are deserving of punishment, but again, just really come against your nature, come against your character. And while my identity in Christ, the relationship that he's procured for me is not subject to threat, the harmony in my relationship with God is when I fail to, I guess, as like Spurgeon said, keep short accounts with God. Yeah. And, and I think, um, in terms of, of the, 
you know, we, we don't want to go too far in trying to draw like one to one correlations between how we interact with God and then how we interact with others, because that can right. get really dangerous. Exactly. But when when I'm in a, a state where my harmony with God, as you said, is is affected, that really is more on it's on my side of the equation than it, than it is on God's. It's not like God is changing his disposition towards us because his disposition towards me is his disposition towards his righteous son who lived a perfect life and died on the cross and was raised and justified. Um, that's, that's a stated fact that will never change. So it's not as though God, you know, I do this, I sin and God goes, man, I'm just so cheesed off that I, I'm not going to bless him today. I am not going to bless him today because he had that angry thought on the way to work. Someone cut him off. I'm just not going to bless him. That's not right. at all the case. Um, instead, what it is, is that I don't, I don't walk in my salvation. I don't live as a saved person. Mm. I'm living at odds with my identity. And I think that that does really carry over to our relationships with um, other people. It's, it isn't the case that those equations are one-sided, right? When someone sins against me, my disposition towards them changes. That's, that's right, a fact. Exactly. Um, and there's nothing I can do to change it. Cause I'm fickle. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to maintain God's, um, God's immutability and especially, you know, his impassibility, the, the fact that he can't be made to suffer or the fact that he can't be made to have his emotions overcome him. That's a huge, huge thing for us to maintain, but that's not how we are. But as, as far as we can, as far as it's possible, I think we should strive for that. Um, when my, when my wife does something that I am not a fan of, which happens so infrequently that I can't even think of an, uh, example, but if she were to do something so smooth, <laughs> she listens to this. So I have to be careful. So good. Um, if, if she were to do something that, um, was upsetting to me and it wasn't something silly that I shouldn't be upset over that happens too. But if she were to do something that was legitimately hurtful to me, I should strive as much as is possible to maintain my disposition towards her as a loving and, and generous and charitable husband who wants to seek his wife's best interest. I should tr strive to maintain that disposition. Um, I'm not going to do it perfectly, but I should try. And that's because we should look at how God, um, how God looks towards us. He's able to do that because he is unchanging. He's unwavering. Uh, and then when when she finally comes to her senses, I'm going to so in so much trouble. Oh, wow. Uh, you just went when she comes prodigal. To, I know. When she comes to her senses and comes to ask for forgiveness, um, I'm ready to forgive because I've maintained that disposition, right? There doesn't need to be right. a transition in me back to being a charitable, loving husband who wants to be reconciled to his wife, right? Because that was always there. So I think that we do need to strive. Forgiveness Forgiveness can only happen, as I've said now, forgiveness can only happen ultimately when both parties play their part in the, in the equation, when the offended person um, is ready to forgive and able to forgive, and when the offending person comes and seeks forgiveness. But as someone who is offended, I have a part to play long before that, not just in in uh, pursuing that person and showing them that I care, but in actually maintaining that dis disposition towards them. Right. And hearing you say that makes me think that probably forgiveness is like a distinctly Christian attitude that really it can't yeah. exist. Like maybe we shouldn't be so disappointed that the difference between forgiveness and I'm sorry is is so clearly demarcated in our secular world, except that 
the fact that we shouldn't expect to see it there because what you just talked about, about having like equanimity, being even keeled, having a disposition that exhibits the fruits of the spirit. It's almost as if we can take the John saying, you know, we love because God first loved us. We forgive because God first forgave us. And that right. he is actually a source of that. So if you pull the source away, if you unplug it from the wall, then there's no reason to expect that you're going to get that kind of response and get that kind of love without him. Exactly. And that's that's why um, the parable of the unmerciful servant is there is because, you know, there's there's some weird you have to be careful with parables not to take them too far, not to take every single point of the parable as a, a one to one point in reality, um, because if you do, then you end up with the. Uh, the unfortunate idea that God somehow rescinds his forgiveness. Right. But the the master, you know, the servant comes and he begs for forgiveness and the master forgives him this ridiculous, un, unimaginable amount of money, right? Uh, 10,000 talents is a unimaginable amount of money. Um, he forgives him because the, the servant came and appeared to be contrite. And so when the servant then goes out and refuses to extend forgiveness, what is happening is he's actually demonstrating that he doesn't believe forgiveness is, is a, at the very least, is an admirable thing. Um, but I think more, he's probably more demonstrating that he doesn't think forgiveness is actually a thing. Right, that, exactly. That it, it, it even exists. He probably feels like he got off the hook or he conned his master somehow. And I think that that's why we have, you know, these different these different commands in scripture to, to forgive that are attached to the idea that if we don't forgive, we ourselves are not is because we can't trust God to forgive us if we don't really believe that forgiveness is a thing. If it's not an admirable quality, if it's not an admirable thing, or if it doesn't exist at all, then how can we possibly trust God to do it on our behalf? That's well said. And yet another example in the Bible where we're talking about forgiveness and by extension, sin using money. And again, I, right. I love that example because it just rings true with me. So I work for a financial institution and the goal of any financial institution or intermediary is to borrow funds from savers and then make loans using that money to people who need to borrow. So if the institution that I work for makes bad loans, which of course never happens, but if they make bad loans and somebody used that money to buy a house and then for whatever reason they can't pay it back, that money came from somebody else who was like saving for retirement. Right. So what has to happen is like the bank has to make good that that saver that provided the funds to make the loan. Like there is no way out of this. So right. it reminds me that forgiveness, even in the example you're talking about with the the pun, the um really generous master, he has to eat that money. I mean, he's basically saying there is a real cost to me. I can't do this now, or I used to have these funds. No matter how much money he had, there is a real loss that he must realize. And that's painful in some way. So in the same way, if somebody were to, for whatever reason, gossip about me or make up some horrible rumor about me, and then was convicted and came to me and said, you know what? I really am sorry. I want to seek your forgiveness in this. Even if I say, like, of course, like, I forgive you, there's still the cost that there are people running around that maybe think ill of me because of something that somebody was said. And there's no way I can collect all that, all those conversations and reverse them. There is a real cost and there is a right. real cost to God and to his son, Jesus Christ, by even our ongoing sin. And that's like a really, a really tough word. Um, yeah. That's hard. Yeah. And that brings us to kind of the penal substitution aspect of how God forgives us is um, it's not exactly the case that when I forgive somebody that I'm like standing in their place and bearing their punishment. But it's not that far off from the truth. Yeah, exactly. Right? So at, at the very heart of what it means to sin against somebody is that when you have sinned against somebody, you owe them some sort of debt. 
whether it's a, a, a financial debt, sometimes that's the case, or whether it's a sort of a relational debt, um, there is a debt of some sort, um, you know, however you want to conceptualize that. And when you say I forgive, when you look, I mean, even if you just think about the etymology in English, the idea is I'm forgiving your debt. I'm not choosing to exercise my prerogative to make claim on this thing you owe me. And instead, I'm letting that go for the sake of our relational harmony, our relational. So you absorb the debt that is owed. Now, that's not to say it's perfect or or complete. The very act of coming to to say you're sorry um, has its own kind of it's its own kind of penalty. Um, but you you in very real ways absorb the penalty or the debt due for that sin when you say, I am not going to hold this person's sin against them. I'm, I'm right. going to I'm not going to hold the debt they've accumulated against them and I'm going to let them I'm going to let them go without making them repay it. Right. And I'm so grateful for the way in which God for us, for his children, for those whom he's elected, that he is the first cause of that salvation and he is the first cause of that forgiveness. And so he brings about the great work of absolving that sin, of taking our dirty robes and replacing it with these robes of righteousness and praise and glory and sanctification. That to me is just an amazing gift. And I think that forgiveness is, again, all wrapped up in the sense that we have to respect that God is the one who does the first work in that. And that should incline our hearts, as you said, through his kindness to be in a state of continual repentance, of humility before him, recognizing that that's the case. But I think that's why it, it gets rightly elevated in so many creeds and a lot of the early church. They had this understanding that to live life in such a way where just like if you owed a ton of money to a ton of people, you would feel entirely burdened. Like, I think we actually spoke about this before in the podcast, like this sense, if you have a lot of debts, sometimes you go to work and you just feel like, well, all I'm doing is working to pay off debt. And it just feels yeah. so debilitating and so overwhelming and so crushing. And yeah. here is God saying, as you said, from eternity past, it's a foregone conclusion that for my children, for my adopted ones, I will make a way of salvation that includes their forgiveness, that will give them light shoulders, that will release that burden. That even as as you were kind of hinting at, Paul having this proper perspective of sin, it, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. There right. is this separation. He's understanding this nuance between his identity and yet his fallen human nature, which continue to conflict. But in the end, God wins. He always gets his man and he always applies forgiveness to the children that he's given unto himself. So it's he never, never delivers up the baby to be left at the doorstep. And I'm just like, like, I just want to, seriously, I just want to like punch the wall in joy. Is that, that's kind of weird, actually. I just want to <laughs> that like is a strange response wall. to forgiveness is to punch through your wall. Yeah, I just want, yeah, that's probably a horrible way to deal, to deal with if you have issues of forgiveness. <laughs> but, um, and, and what we're not saying, like you said, is that when it comes to like relational and horizontal forgiveness, it's really nuanced. It's very complex. But what we, we can say for sure is that God's loving kindness is demonstrated in the way that he applies forgiveness to us, even when we don't deserve it. And certainly when we do not express enough contrition, even though we come before him and we realize that we are guilty uh, before him and that you know, like a loving and holy God cannot even be close to being in communion with us. So yeah. I, I just think that that's like a tremendously important thing to consider. Yeah. And I think um, I think sometimes we make horizontal forgiveness way more complicated than it has to be. Right. So something can be incredibly simple, but still be incredibly difficult. For and sure. I think. I think that we sometimes we 
we maybe not consciously, but we put all of these conditions and steps on relational reconciliation and forgiveness that make it so much more complex than it needs to be. So, you know, it's, it's literally as simple as, and simple, not easy, but simple as I'm not going to hold your sin against you. Right. I'm not going to take um, my rights to, um, to exercise uh, my ability to hold this against you. I'm not going to take advantage of that, right? We see, and we see that theme in the scriptures of of Jesus kind of not exercising his rights. We see that in Philippians that although it was it was within his rights to to be God because he was God, he didn't use it for his advantage. He, that Amen. that's what that canonic passage in Philippians two is. Is it's not that he ceased to be God; it's that he no longer exercised his privilege. Um, as God in in how it relates to his human ministry, he saw others as better than himself, right? And in in First um, Corinthians, I want to say chapter six, we're talking about lawsuits. The whole kind of culmination of it is, um, wouldn't it be better for you to be wronged and to be at peace with your brother than it would be for you to take them to court and get that money? That's the whole culmination of it, and it, it's. And unfortunately, the the um, the NIV mangles this, and so I didn't actually run into this until I got to college and started studying Greek. The, I think the ESV does better. Is you know, it's talking about lawsuits and it says, "Wouldn't it be better for you to be wronged?" And then it says, "Or do you not know that the the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven?" And it, it's that same exact theme that we see in the parable of the unmerciful servant. If you're not willing to forgive this legal obligation that your your peer apparently has to you, if you're so insistent on pressing that, that you need to take hold of that uh, debt they owe you, then you're not right. one of the, you're not one of the elect. You're not going to inherit the kingdom if you're not able and willing to forgive. And the, um, the text unfortunately drops out that little, that little or, that little rhetorical or that connects those two concepts. Um, and it's so important. I mean, I can't emphasize it enough that we have to understand that if we are not a forgiving people, then we're a people, but we're not God's people. If we're not Amen. a forgiving people, if we serve a forgiving God, then God's people need to be a, a forgiving people. That's man, that preaches. That's so good. <laughs> yeah, because debt is all about claims. So right. if you have purchased a car on borrowed money, then whoever lent you the money, like the bank, has a claim on your future income in some amount. And if you stop paying, which I definitely do not condone, then they have a claim on the vehicle if it's been collateralized by the loan. So yeah. So much of the Christian life, as Christ demonstrates to us, both explicitly and implicitly, is giving up claims. Where you live mm -hmm. and what uh, what you do and even your health. And so this is another way in which it probably behooves us to err on the side of trying to be more loving, more patient, more kind. As we extend forgiveness, then trying to say, well, have all the right preconditions been met? Right. Have, they, have I sensed that they are sorry enough or have they expressed contrition in the words that I really kind of think that I need to hear as if there's some like formulaic approach, like some kind of sinner's prayer of confession and repentance that I need to hear on my own level in order to extend forgiveness to them. Right. And you're right. I don't think that that's helpful. And I think, again, that we're probably better off with saying, how can I be more loving in this situation and trust that the good Lord is going to work out these details. But what's incumbent upon me is to release the claim and releasing the right. claim and, and not in a way like, have you heard like all this like kind of crazy nonsense? And I think it sometimes gets smuggled into like the Christian worldview because it sounds really good sayings like, well, 
not granting forgiveness is like drinking poison and watching for the other person to die. Like th- that, that's not even the point. Like we're talking yeah. about not that it gives you some kind of benefit or that it releases some kind of burden within you, but this is in fact the example that Christ gave us. And this is more or less the lifeblood that we have. We exist and we move through our being because Christ forgave us because right. what's rightfully deserved is instant death now and eternal separation, except for, that he reached down and plucked us as branches from the fire. And we right. had, we had always to remember that. Yeah, exactly. The The only precondition that I can set on forgiving somebody is that I'm a Christian. Yes. Right That's on. the only precondition. And if that precondition is not met, then I got to get my own stuff figured out before I start trying to hold things against other people. And it's funny because this, you know, you're going to, as someone who works in banking, you're going to be like, this never happens. But when I was in college, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people when they get, you know, they get their first credit card and they go a little crazy and they don't, they don't think about it. And so when I was in college, I got myself into some credit card um, debt, like serious credit card debt. It wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was way beyond anything that I had any hope of repaying. And so I had worked out a plan with, um, with my parents to, um, to do some things, but ultimately I was making payments to the bank that were not, they weren't sufficient even to pay off the interest, but I was just making these payments because I knew it was the right thing to do. And I got a letter that basically said, I, I probably should have kept this. If I'd thought about the, the just amazing sermon illustration, it would be, I would have kept the letter, but I got a letter with a check that said, we canceled your debt six months ago. Here's all the money that you've sent us. We don't know how you sent it to us. So they canceled the debt, but they didn't tell me that they canceled the debt. So I just kept sending the checks. And um, it's it's the perfect kind of illustration that um, forgiveness starts in the heart of the person offended, right? So the person can say, I'm no longer going to hold this debt against you. Um, but if the person who's offending continues to think that they owe a debt and they continue to try to do things until the person um, comes to them and says, look, I'm not holding this debt against you anymore. Right. That's when forgiveness actually the the equation is completed. That's when everything balances and all of a sudden both parties are back in that reconciled relationship. I thought that I had this obligation to the bank and I didn't anymore. And um, like I said, from from everybody I've talked to, like the bank had no reason to cancel. I didn't even ask them to cancel the the debt and I was making payments. So it wasn't like they were trying to get rid of the bank and the account. I don't know if it was like somebody just decided to be generous, but that's exactly what happened is I didn't know that I had been forgiven until I got a notice from them saying, look, you've been forgiven. Um, And so I I just think we need to be much quicker to recognize as the offended party that like we really need to go first, just like God went first. Maybe not just like God went first, but in the same way that God went first, we need to recognize that we need to go first. We're We're the ones that need to come out. The parable of the unmerciful servant, what should have happened is he is forgiven of his debt. He should have walked out. He should have went and found that person that owed him money. And instead of saying, pay me back everything you owe, he should have said, this amazing thing has happened. I was forgiven my debt. Now I'm going to forgive your debt. Go and do likewise. Mm. And that's what we need to do as Christians is we need to be able to go to not just our Christian you know, spouses, parents, whatever. We should be able to go to our coworkers and say, you know what? You said this thing at work in a meeting the other day that humiliated me and I was really upset about it, but I've decided that I'm not going to hold that against you. So if you see me doing things that you think is me holding that against you, I want you to remind me that I'm forgiven and that you've forgiven me. You're a forgiven person and that you have forgiven me. And that will change people's perspectives on you if you do that. Yeah, There's no way, right. There's no way that someone is going to look at you and say, 
yeah, that's a normal thing to do, <laughs> right? You talk, you know, we talk about like, you know, the whole like preach the gospel, use words if necessary. That's dumb. Of course you have to use words. The gospel exactly. is a historical thing that happened in history. You have to tell people you have to use words, but it, it's not usually the case that the holiness of your life is really going to cause people to go. Something is different about you. But if you go up to people and say, I forgive you for this thing you did. And I know you probably don't feel like you need to be forgiven, but I was upset and I'm not holding that against you. That's going to, people are going to notice that and they're not going to know what to do with it. Cut to everyone listening right now that really wants to know where you got that credit card at. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm assuming that that bank probably doesn't exist anymore. Oh, the bank of Jesus. The bank of Jesus. (laughs) what, What I love so much about that is even your choice of language. So many people, like you said, if you go kind of unprovoked to somebody who doesn't think that they've wronged you and say, you're forgiven. I think they kind of feel that like almost like more, uh, like more sense of anger or disposition towards you because they're like, well, I don't need your forgiveness. But how you just said, like, I'm not going to hold that against you. Like it did offend me, but I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm, I'm struck by the idea that we get so focused on, like you've said, what we need for bilateral forgiveness. Like both parties need to turn their keys in the submarine to get the missile to launch. The missile is forgiveness, I guess, in this example. Um, The nuclear missile of forgiveness. Yeah, the nuclear missile, like blow up your sin. Um, That we forget that we should do exactly as you said, always have a disposition that is ready to forgive. That's already made forgiveness in a way a foregone conclusion like it has for God. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. It it also strikes me um, going all the way back to Hosea. Do you ever have this thought? I have this thought that I like to think in heaven, all of the, probably more like all the prophets are chilling and they're in a circle, like unfolding chairs, like eating those like little wafer cookies that you get at like potlucks the old ladies bring. And it's a very specific vision in my mind. And they're hanging out and the conversation turns to like, what weird things that God have you do? And they're just going yeah. around like trying to one up each other. And then it gets to Hosea and it's just like a mic drop. <laughs> yeah. I think that between Hosea and Ezekiel, I think those two probably had it the worst. Oh, true. So good. That's a good call. Like I have to wonder if they're ever going to like just compare notes and be like, wait, what? God had you do what? Say that again. Yeah. It would just be fantastic. I mean, Hosea, I think Hosea had it the worst, but I actually was reading that passage the other day where, where God basically sits Ezekiel down and he's like, listen, Ezekiel, I'm going to take away the thing, the person you love the most. Yeah, you're not, that is you're rough. not allowed to grieve. That is rough. And I read, I read that and I'm like, man, I, I can't even get through an episode of This Is Us without tearing up. <laughs> How am I, how am I supposed to think about like my wife being killed and not being able to grieve? And I I just, I I just can't imagine that. I I can just see, I just have this picture of Ezekiel who's also mute. He can't talk unless he's preaching a very specific message. I just have this picture of him sitting there silently like, great. Yeah. This just took a really dark turn. This whole conversation. It did. That made, that made me really uh, sad or like, so in a more like maybe lighthearted tone, I think of the same thing with like Isaiah and God saying like, I'm going to need you to get naked now for a very was, long period yeah, of time. Yeah, that's true. I'm going to need you to walk around naked. Yeah. Like that, that's a dude who's like solely sold out for the Lord. That's like, yeah, yeah uh, if you need me to get rid of this loincloth, that's what, exactly what we'll do. He's like, all right, Isaiah. We're going to call your house the naked house from now. Yeah, that's straight up what's what's happening, which is definitely something that we haven't talked about in this podcast, but is another common saying in the <laughs> Trump household. Like, every, if you live in a neighborhood, which presumably you do, 
every neighborhood I feel like has the naked house where like probably there's some kind of weird neighbor that is in some kind of state of disrobe that you can see like in their windows. Not that you're like, this is getting weird. Not that like you're (laughs) trying to check them out or like you're peeping in, but just like you're going to get the mail, you look over and you're like, oh, there's a shirtless dude or whatever. Right. Um, Or they, or they go to go get the mail and they're not wearing a shirt. Yeah. And they're not wearing a shirt. So again, my, I guess my admonition to everybody is if you can't identify the naked house in your neighborhood, then it is you. Right. So just it's probably be, you. Yeah. Just beware of that. But yeah, that's, that's one thing I thought about. So what do you have uh, for a way of like kind of closing Tony? Like what are kind of your last thoughts on this subject of forgiveness, this huge subject of forgiveness, sum it up, <laughs> go sum it up. <laughs> Let me sum up forgiveness in five words or less. No. Um, I mean, I think this is going to sound weird, but like a real practical thing you can do is like sit down. This is going to sound really terrible, but sit down and write out all of the people and all of the things that have happened to you in the last week that you are rightfully upset about. Because no matter who you are, where you are, what you're doing, what situation in life, there have been things in the last week that you can identify that are rightfully things you have are legitimate reason to be upset about. Write them down on a piece of paper and then take that piece of paper and crumple it up and throw it in the garbage. And it's a concrete way for you to say, like, it's not mystical. There's not some super special spiritual thing, you know, like, don't build a cross and nail it to the cross. But, like, take that piece of paper, crumple it up and throw it in the garbage and recognize that, like, that physical act of doing that should be a representation of the spiritual, emotional act that we have to do every day. We have to decide every day that I am not going to let other people's sins, I'm not going to hold them against them because my sins have not been held against me. So I've, I mean, I've done that in the past. I don't do it frequently, but I I think that that's a really helpful way to kind of like get your mind around the reality of what you need to do, because you can sit there and you can think, well, this person that I know at work, he cut in line in front of me at lunch. And then I was late to my meeting and it was embarrassing and I got in trouble. So I'm going to hold that against them. Um, You can think like, I'm not going to hold that against them. But when you see him tomorrow, when you see him on Monday or her on Monday, the first thing you're going to think is, man, I can't believe that dirty snake. He cut in line in front of me and he made me late and I was embarrassed. Wow, dirty snake. Dirty, rotten snake. But <laughs> but if you instead have in your mind that you wrote that down and you crumple it up and you threw it away, then you have another another mental trigger to latch onto. Instead of the anger that you feel, you have that act that you engaged in of throwing that sin away and choosing not to remember it, choosing not to hold it against them, that you can replace in your mind the the anger and the frustration you feel. And when the time's right, maybe you can say, you know what, this is something I've been working on. This is something I've been praying about. And this is what I did. And I want you to know that I'm not holding this against you. Amen. And I think that that's a great way to do it. It is a great way to do that. That's a wonderful, tangible example. It, it forces you to play an active role in processing what forgiveness really means like day to day. Those are the kind of uh, enacted parables that the prophets wish they could get. <laughs> Instead, God's like, all right, uh, I need you to uh, cook up some food on some human dung. Yeah. It, yeah. It, again, cr- crazy stuff, right? These yeah. guys totally sold out. He's like, it's yeah. time to deliver some sermons in the buff. Yeah, exactly. And I guess I would say in closing, going back to something really simple, and I'm definitely speaking to myself here, and that is when it comes to forgiveness, to go back to just trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means, at least for me, to cast all our souls with their sins unreservedly on Christ, which would mean cease completely from any dependence on our own works, either in whole or in part, resting on Christ's work, 
realizing that it's his righteousness alone and there's no other merit that we have and no other ground for hope. And this would include sometimes, at least for me, smuggling in the sense of, well, if I'm obedient, if I'm spending enough time with the Lord, if my prayer closet is particularly robust, then somehow I feel like I've earned this forgiveness in even a small way. But trusting and going back to the fact that uh, we deserve the flames and somehow God has procured for us through Jesus Christ this great forgiveness that results in our salvation. And we should just always be bending the knee to that in just gratefulness and in love for others. So I think going back there for me, understanding that Christ made a full and complete satisfaction for sin in that there's like eternal benefits, obviously, like we're, we're stoked about being in his presence, seeing that beautific, beautific vision, being face to face with Lord Jesus Christ, like hanging out and doing awesome stuff. At the same time, it has all these temporal benefits of not being enslaved to guilt and to shame. Yeah. And for me, at least, I'm going to get up from the place where I'm sitting after a conversation with you and certainly feel a lot lighter being reminded that if we're faithful and just uh, to confess our sins, or sorry, if we if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah, and I can't amen. think of a better truth than that. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that probably just about does it. So uh, go and live a life of forgiveness and we will see you next week. Yeah, absolutely. And before you go and live that life of forgiveness, you should definitely head on over to iTunes, rate and review this show. So that's a good way other people can find us, right? Yes. Yeah. Rate and review. It's a good way to do it. Have you seen that commercial? This is going to seem like a weird transition. Have you seen that commercial? I think it's for like a a phone app to like notify you about your flight where there's like the couple and they're like, oh, I love you. I'm going to miss you so much. I'm going to miss you so much. And then the little alert goes off and they kiss goodbye. The little alert goes off. He's like, oh, my flight's delayed two hours. And she's like, oh, well, I have a haircut appointment. (laughs) And then they just like walk away. That's what this podcast is like now that you circumvented my see you next week. How are we going to end now? We're just going to have to keep going all night. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was trying to be really slick with that, but I was like, I want people to review us. I mean, if you don't review us, we will probably forgive you in all likelihood, but yes, we won't hold that against you. Yeah. It's unlikely we'll hold that against you, but man, it would sure be great because in all honesty, like this is the kind of conversation that I love having with you, Tony, because this is some real time, like zero editing. And I'm kind of processing this stuff out loud with you. I'm I'm genuinely interested in how I can be more forgiving and understand the, the whole essence of God's forgiveness more completely. So if this is a blessing to to somebody else, which I hope like, or you know, somebody else who might want to hear us babble on about Scrapple and forgiveness and Hosea and the Hobbit all in a single episode, (laughs) then you should definitely send this on. But before you do, just drop five stars real quick in iTunes. Yes. Yeah. We don't have any prizes to give you except our eternal love and gratitude. Yes. And accept the satisfaction of doing something well and good. All right. Tony, so you I, may now, I you may now dismiss us. All right. We'll see you next week. <laughs> what if-